Welcome back to Professor Penn's podcast. This is episode number 67. David Penn here welcoming you back. I hope you're feeling well. This podcast is about takeover. That's right, takeover. We need to understand it's a takeover. But before we get into that, let me please thank Free People Radio for giving a platform for the Professor Penn podcast. Please go to freepeopleradio.com to learn about our content. And guess what? If you like this episode, and if you like the Professor Penn podcast, what we're doing here at Free People, there's four different ways for you to support free people. And let me just say, and I've said this before, we got a big controversy around the campfire here about how to fund this operation. And what we would really like is to, as much as possible, stay away from the advertisers. We just don't want to go broke. We just would like the audience to support this content, and we hope that you do. And if you do, thank you very much. TireGet.com. TireGet, I think it's the best product ever in the history of the Patriot economy to support Truth Media. TireGet.com, everything you need for tires. TireGet.com, please go there and check it out. And PrecinctStrategy.com, we're always coming back to it because the future of the country rests in the hand of you the American citizen. If you have an interest of getting involved in politics, you can go to precinctstrategy.com, and Dan Schultz has left a tutorial there for how to get into the game of politics, get off the bench, and get a seat at the table. Well, there's a lot going on, and um, it's getting uh, more and more complicated all the time. I remember when I, I, I went into politics several years ago, and when I say got into politics, I've been doing politics uh, my, oh, I don't know, since about 1993, and uh, I just wasn't involved in Minnesota politics. And when I got involved in Minnesota politics, I told my family, hey, we're going to hell in a handbasket, and I have to get involved. And I felt that very, very strongly. Uh, well, more so today than ever, you know, sitting around, uh, talking with, uh, friends and family, they still, most of them believe that we're okay, that everything's just great. Uh, they see the things that are going on in the world, but they're not really relating it to how it's going to impact my life or your life. Well, let me just say, with $33 trillion in debt, war is breaking out all over the Eurasian landmass. The war in Ukraine hasn't gone away. That's continuing to grind along. Now we've got this second front in the Middle East. That's no kidding around. In fact, it occurred to me this morning, the historical role of the Semites because these are Democrats and Republicans, right? Jews and Palestinians, they're both Semites. They're cousins, after all. They come from the same family. They're from the seed of Abraham. You know, this is a, a completely different kind of a war. Uh, the War of 48, for 
the independence of Israel or the establishment of the state of Israel. I missed that one. I wasn't on the planet yet. And I missed 52, which was the follow-up. But 67, I remember every minute of it. 73, every minute of it. And all the subsequent wars. And this conflict seems to have a different kind of characteristic. That there's been um, not necessarily a leveling of capabilities because Israel has nuclear weapons, maybe a couple thousand of them. But in terms of uh, strategic capabilities of a conventional nature, I think there's been uh, quite a bit of um, closing of the gap, so to speak, between the uh, Arab resistance, Hezbollah in the north and Hamas in the Gaza. I think there's been quite a bit of narrowing of this gap. And uh, when we start talking about house-to-house street fighting in Gaza, Hey, that's mano a mano. That's that's crazy. That's that's really a bloody kind of a deal that they're getting involved in. So, in conventional warfare terms, Israel does not enjoy the kind of tremendous advantage that is in, enjoyed in previous conflicts. And then that brings up the idea of nuclear weapons. And if this war was to spread quickly and Israel was to be confronted on several fronts, confronted on several fronts simultaneously, the question is raised whether or not if the conventional military forces of Israel are sufficient to repel well-armed invaders. We don't know the answer to that. We might be finding out. And if Israel is penetrated, and its defenses break down, the willingness of the Israelis to use tactical nuclear weapons, their willingness is unquestioned. So how poetic would it be for the Israelis to survive, for them to drop a tactical nuke or two or three or four, poisoning the world, plunging the world into an environmental crisis of unparalleled proportions, which, you know, radiation would be traveling around the globe. It could be a lockdown. It would be a health crisis. It would be an environmental crisis. And then the Jews would have done it, which is how convenient everybody can blame it on the Jews. So this conflict has potentials again to push our world further into a loss of freedom, a loss of individual sovereignty, a diminishment of American citizenship. Because after all, if Israel uses a nuclear weapon, or if this conventional war generates scenes and images of unprecedented atrocity, is it not possible to see that we're going to have domestic terrorism here in the United States? that we, the American people, would scream for our military and for our government to protect us because basically we're unable to protect ourselves uh, because we've given up that skill over the hundreds of years since the formation of our country. So it's very dangerous. What I see is the need, what I feel is the need for American citizens 
number one, to protest for peace. Not for Hamas, not for Israel, but for the United States of America. Young people, particularly, do not realize that right over the next hill is a draft where military service will no longer be mercenary or voluntary. It will be a requirement of being an American citizen. How do we avoid this? Peace. Peace. We seek peace. We're $33 trillion in debt. None of these fights are our own. We, the, the people of the United States of America, we did not establish Israel. That was a crown, an invention of the British crown. Go back and look at the Balfour Declaration. Israel was a Zionist Marxist creation of the British government. It has nothing to do with America. Now, American Jews have a great deal of identification with Israel. This is something I understand, and this is something we're going to continue to speak to. But I have said, and I'll say it again, if I oppose the war in the Ukraine because it's none of my business as an American citizen, and I want that money to be spent on bringing jobs back to the United States, on the welfare and well-being of the American people, not on killing Ukrainians and killing Russians. That's not an, who benefits that. You know, I just keep saying, does it benefit me or my children? It doesn't. I'm an American citizen. I want my elected representatives to listen to me, the constituent, and I want to question the constituents that believe that America should be an empire because empire and self-governance are mutually exclusive. You cannot have self-governance and individual freedom in an empire. Over time, an empire becomes a dictatorship. And that's what we're going to talk about today, takeover. And in times like these, in times like these, I believe in prayer. You know, I was watching um, another very famous, very famous um, media personality and news commentator, and, and he said on his podcast this past weekend that God had, you know, encouraged him to pray on every episode. Well, we've been praying here on the Professor Penn podcast for a very long time. The power of prayer, and I have to say, listen to the prayer. We have to learn. That particular prayer can be improved, in my opinion. And this is someone I can reach out to, and I will. We don't pray begging and groveling. That's not what our God wants us to do. Our God wants us to have faith that whatsoever we wish for when we pray, we believe, we've received it, and we shall have it. So let me do a couple here to start the day. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. 
Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and the earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. And blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Oh, I was weary this week, and I, I didn't get out of bed on Saturday. And the reason why is I've come to a conclusion. The conclusion is the Republican Party, of which I am an officer, is populated by so many evil people and stupid people that for me to help that party only makes the problem worse. I'm a delegate, and my sole mission, and I hope yours too, is to carefully vet candidates that have the well-being of the American citizens in mind, the well-being of our earth in mind, the well-being of living in mind. And that's the only people we elect. we got to get rid of these neocons, war hawks, ex-military, military-industrialist, money-orientated, materialist-orientated people that either because they're stupid or evil are threatening our lives. So we need to be delegates. we got to refresh this party with new people. And that means being aware that we're at war. We're at war, which is exactly where this government wanted to go because this government is controlled by the military-industrial complex. So, in times of war, praise be to the Lord my rock who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my loving God and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield in whom I take refuge, who, sedu- who subdues peoples under me. O Lord, what is man that you care for him, the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath, his days are like a fleeting shadow. Part your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountains so that they smoke. Send forth lightning and scatter the enemies. Shoot your arrows and rout them. Reach down your hand from on high. Deliver me and rescue me from the mighty waters, from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. I will sing a new song to you, O God. On the lyre, I will make music to you. I will sing a new song to you. I will make music to you. To the one that gives victory to kings, who delivers his servant from the deadly sword. Deliver me and rescue me from the hands of foreigners whose mouths are full of lies, whose right hands are deceitful. Then our sons in their youth will be like well-nurtured plants, and our daughters will be like pillars carved to adorn a palace. Our barns will be filled with every kind of provision. Our sheep will increase by thousands, by tens of thousands in our fields. Our oxen will draw heavy loads. There will be no breaching of walls no going into captivity, and no cry of distress in our streets. Blessed are the people of whom this is true. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. Takeover. Let's talk about takeover. Uh, Can you please play this 
clip on Hitler Rises to Power. Hello and welcome to History Pod. On the 30th of January 1933, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany by President Paul von Hindenburg. Hitler's rise to power was neither immediate nor particularly expected, especially as he had been imprisoned for a treasonous attempt to overthrow the Weimar government in 1923. His incarceration in Landsberg prison gave him the opportunity to redraw his blueprint for seizing power, and on his release he set about rebuilding the Nazi party as a legitimate political organisation. It wasn't until the Great Depression that the Nazis truly emerged as a mainstream force. Germany faced a particularly dire economic situation which the Weimar government, under the Chancellor Brüning, responded to by cutting government spending and benefits. Rather than solving the problem, this actually made the situation worse and seriously damaged the public's trust in the government. By 1932, six million Germans were out of work. This desperate situation saw a dramatic increase in support for the Nazis. In 1932, Hitler capitalised on this growing national appeal to stand in the presidential election against Hindenburg himself. Although Hitler lost the election with 13 million votes to Hindenburg's 19 million, the election campaign had secured the Nazis' enormous publicity. Meanwhile, the beleaguered government struggled on. By the end of 1932, ex-Chancellor Franz von Papen began arguing that Hitler and the 196 Nazis in the Reichstag could form a majority and get the government moving again. Hindenburg reluctantly agreed to make Hitler the Chancellor, based on the assumption that, by ensuring only a few Nazis were in the cabinet, and von Papen himself was vice-chancellor, the Nazis could be controlled. As a consequence, Hitler was formally appointed German Chancellor on the 30th of January, 1933. And the rest is history. The rest is history. So Hitler was elected. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that election because we're in, a, in an election season here. And I'm, as I've said many times, this is an underground transmission. The powers that be have a very difficult time dealing with the Jewish man talking about Nazis. And I'm asking my audience, my listeners and viewers, to draw some conclusions about what we're doing here, about how politics works, particularly after a very intense chaos ensues, like a nuclear bomb popping off and an economic collapse. Politics changes. You know, a hungry belly makes for a hungry voter, makes for an angry voter, right? A hungry belly becomes an angry voter, an angry man, an angry woman. Things change. Things can change. Or a scared voter. However you want to Describe the emotion, fear and anger. It's really the same, same emotion. When people are afraid or very angry, they become subject to demagoguery. And that's what happened in, in Germany. People begged for relief. Well, let's see how they voted. 
Can you play this next piece on uh, how they voted in Germany in the last free election there? On the 5th of March 1933, a general election was held in Germany. By this time, the National Socialist Party controlled the police and its thugs controlled the streets. The Nazis controlled the vote counting. Despite fraud and despite frightening many opposition activists either into fleeing or keeping quiet, the Nazis still did not manage to get a majority but they did get 43.9% of the vote. The SPD came second with 20.4% and the Communists had 16.9%. With all the fear and intimidation, the SPD vote held up remarkably well, especially as many of its leaders had fled or were in hiding. The Nazis took 33 of the 35 electoral districts with Cologne and Koblenz returning the Center Party which nationally took 11.2%. Due to the nationalist DNVP, German National People's Party, taking 8% of the vote, the Nazis were able to form an alliance with them which in turn allowed them to form a parliamentary majority. This majority became more effective by preventing those that did not support him from attending parliament or having him arrested. So who voted for the Nazis? The first thing one would suspect is that many communist voters went over to the National Socialists but that would not explain everything. The communist vote fell by 4.5% whilst the Nazis grew by 10.8%. The Nazis polled over 55% of the vote in the border areas with Poland, East Prussia, Pomerania and Frankfurt on Oder. They also got over 50% in Lainitz and Breslau areas in which the population was to suffer very cruelly for this support 12 years later. However they also received over half the vote in eastern Hanover, Schleswig, Holstein, Hamburg and Chemnitz, Zwickau. The vote in Bavaria oscillated around the national average. This pattern does not suggest the communists were going over to the Nazis. Indeed research done on voting patterns seems to indicate that although the Nazis attempted to represent the uneducated working class, those that ended up voting for them were more the middle classes and better off. I would suggest that the role of the Reichstag fire was very important in the voters' minds who may have learned about it from the media outlets of Alfred Hugenberg, leader of the right-wing DNVP and who along with von Papen brought Hitler to the chancellorship in January 1933. Thus the Nazis used the imagined fear of communism to produce something that was in reality much worse and something which would less than seven years later be allied to that very communist ideal which it claimed to oppose. Thank you. Thank you very much. So what is the uh, point of this exercise? Number one, the German people voted in the Nazis. And uh, the analysis is what, how the Nazis get there. Well, here's my point. I want to take a look at the spectrum for a few minutes of the political parties that were available for the German voter to choose from. We had the Nazis, and, you know, they're always characterized as a far-right party. Actually, they were a workers' party. They were a socialist workers' party. They were a fascist party. They were a pro-business, pro-worker party based on the idea of nationalism. They were a nationalist workers' party. The DNVP was also a nationalist workers' party. Ultimately, in the ascension of Hitler to becoming the Fuhrer 
It was the alliance of the DNVP, a National Workers' Party, and the Nazi Party. They ended up with 52% of the seats in the parliament, and whoa, you have a dictator, just like that. There was a center party that got 11.2% of that vote, that last free election. That was really the Christian Democrats. It was a centrist party, a religious party. Let's come back to that. And then we had two communist groups, the Social Democratic Party of Germany, the SPD. They got 20%. And just the straight-up communists, the far left, they got 17%. So there was two communist parties, a center religious party. Actually, let me just rephrase it. There was two communist parties on the far left. There were two nationalist workers' parties just to their right. And then on the far right was a religious party, the center party, not very aptly named. Okay, let's let's look at how this has been used over the many years of my life and of your life to manipulate the American people. The Nazi party, the Nazi party and the DNVP were workers' parties, but they were nationalist workers' parties not communist workers' parties. A communist party is workers of the world unite. That is not what the Nazis and the DNVP had in mind. They had nationalism in mind, and nationalism tied to, this is very critical, tied to a Volk, a people, a tribe, the German people, the Teutonic tribes. They had a tribal mentality, kind of like, the Jews or the Chinese, that's an ethno-nationalist polity. Or the Russians, that's an ethno-nationalist polity. What are we here in America? We always hear it. Our strength is diversity. We don't have a tribal bond through blood or through genetics. We have tribalism through balkanization, completely different. You can see that the left, the communists, took control of this world in 1945 at the end of World War II because everything became about demonizing nationalism because German nationalism was tied to tribalism. That's a scam. The communists won the day at at the end of that war. That's why we find ourselves in a communist environment here today. Because the idea of nationalism was utterly and totally discredited because they were successful in linking nationalism to the idea of the Teutonic tribe or the myth of the Aryan super race. This is a scam. This is not the facts. Because the Germans went down a road of ethno-nationalism and Aryan superiority, and that became a cover story to discredit nationalism, that's not really intellectually honest. Nationalism is we as American citizens loving our American citizenship, our freedom, our founding documents. There's nothing wrong with loving your country. Loving your country to create a master race, that's a different story. So you can see that the dialogue from 45 has been about discrediting nationalism, aggrandizing leftism, communism, progressivism, 
all its different names. It's all the same. Call it Democrat Party. doesn't matter what you call it. But we had these two nationalist parties, the Nazis and the DNVP, two communist workers part groups, and a, a religious group. Well, the two nationalist parties tied to the idea of a Volk or a people, that really doesn't exist here in the United States. What we have here in our country today is the Democrat Party and its far left, and we have a a proto-Republican party that professes faith in God, but really doesn't have it. It's really materialism, because what does it really want? Militarism, low taxes, low regulation. Militarism, empire. That's the Republican Party aligned with that Democrat Party, the Uni Party. And then to the right of the Uni Party is the American movement or the American nationalist movement. So they're very deep similarities here, and I'm contemplating them, and I urge you to contemplate them, because we're in a takeover. And that takeover, if you're looking for it, can be seen, it's right in front of your face. It's right in front of our face. So let's talk about changing the rules. Uh, can we uh, play this clip uh, about with uh, Hakeem Jeffries here, and we might stop a few times as we go through it. Welcome back. The House has been without a speaker for nearly 13 days. On Friday, House Republicans nominated Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, the hard right chairman of the Judiciary Committee, to be their next speaker, but quickly postponed a floor vote as it became clear more than 50 Republican members are not prepared to support Jordan. You can only afford to lose four Republican votes. House Democrats made it clear they are unenthusiastic about bailing out the Republican majority. Can you we stop want to second, please. Before we listen to Hakeem, uh, you know, this is an older piece I'm trying to focus on, Hakeem. But the uh, the latest news is, of course, that over this past few days, um, the Republicans in a private vote, private, so they swamp creatures could hide their identities, roundly and quite overwhelmingly rejected Jim Jordan. So here we are. Uh, without a Speaker of the House. And if you're listening to the news, it's chaos, it's a catastrophe, it's, uh, you know, a, a crisis. It's not. What it is, is the American people, it's representatives who are reflecting the will of the American people are now getting organized. This kind of thing was unimaginable just a few months ago. And what's happening is, is you're looking at a change in our government you're looking at our government governance be modified as the will of the American people expresses itself. And what's the will? Please don't kill me, for starters. Please don't take all my money away. And let's make it even a little bit clearer. Thank you for not killing me, and thank you for not taking all my money away, and thank you for not taking my freedom away. The people that believe that are making a stand and trying to create an authentic politics that is not captured totally by moneyed interests. There's nothing wrong with this. You know, there's going to be a window coming up here when the government's going to shut down. Let it shut down. Let us not be so afraid of a political process that's bringing about change. Because let's talk about what the alternative is, and that's takeover. It's called change the rules. Please continue with Hakeem. Oh, and before you do, Hakeem Jeffries is the House 
minority leader. This guy checks every box. He's black. He's articulate. He's got a, an Arabic first name, which, by the way, means wise, learned. Okay, Hakim. And this guy, when we listen to him, we're going to realize this guy is an actor of the highest, highest level. This guy is any guy. I'm going to prove it to you for the next 10 minutes. Let's listen to him. On a bipartisan path to reopening the House of Representatives so we can solve problems for the American people and stand with our friends like Israel and Ukraine Stop, please. and others. Okay, so we need to have bipartisanship, which means uniparty, so we can stand with our friends Israel and the Ukraine, which means spend right now, this is about getting a speaker so they can pass a bill with $116 billion of additional war funding for these two wars in Asia, where the profits are probably $30, 40000000000 billion. And when the weapons are used up, we can even spend more money on weapons, money we don't have. Please continue. Throughout the free world, but the House Republican Civil War. Stop. Continue. Okay, see, now here's a black man talking about civil war. It's not a civil war. It's politics. All of this hyperbole about civil war is to make me feel like I need to give up, like I'm doing something wrong, like I'm a revolutionary or a, uh, uh, what would you call that? Um, a confederate. I'm a confederate. No, this is not the Civil War. Please don't hearken back to those in images, Hakeem. This is politics. This is a group of people standing up for me, and thank you for doing so. Please continue. News to rage on. Joining me now is the House Democratic leader, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York. Leader Jeffries, welcome back to Meet the Press. Good morning. Well, let's start right there. We heard you talking about a bipartisan solution to resolving this stalemate in the House. Are you actually having conversations behind the scenes with your Republican counterparts about trying to create a bipartisan solution, a governing coalition? There are informal conversations that have been underway when we get back to Washington tomorrow. It's important to begin to formalize those discussions. From the very beginning of this Congress, House Democrats have made clear that we want to continue to put people over politics and to fight for things like lower costs, better paying jobs, safer communities, and to build an economy that works from the middle out and the bottom up. Stop, please. On the, other the willingness of these people to lie into the camera, everything that this man just said, better you know, jobs and a better life for the American people. These folks have unleashed an inflation upon the American people that is not slowing down. It's a train going down the track to run over the top of all of us. I noticed that restaurants that I can't afford to go to anymore, because I used to like to go out, I'm not doing it anymore, can't afford it. But when I, when I do go into a restaurant, I noticed that at the time I go there, it should be packed, waiting in line. No, it's half empty. That's a restaurant that's soon to close. There's going to be so much economic disruption that's going to come from this inflation, and this inflation is government policy. This is a tax on every one of us. 
They're transferring the money up to where? The military-industrial complex. And we have such good reasons for doing so. Our allies need our money. So the Democrat Party, the Uni Party, I don't even want to call them Democrats. That's a scam. The Uni Party talks about jobs and the American people and, you know, making in service to we the people. But in reality, what's being serviced is the money that kills. Let's continue. On the other hand, House Republicans have been focused on fighting each other. It's time to end the Republican Civil War Stop, so we please. can get back to... No, it's not. We're not ending the Republican Civil War because what Hakeem is angling for here is that he becomes the speaker. That's his angle. He's the speaker of last resort. So we need to keep this politics of change, this politics of positive change moving forward. Please continue doing the business of the American people. And we as House Democrats are committed to finding that bipartisan path forward in a meaningful way. Leader Jeffries, this has been going on for 11 days. Why haven't formal conversations started yet? At this point, that is on my House Republican colleagues. We have made clear publicly and privately that we are ready, willing, and able to enter into a bipartisan governing coalition that puts the American people first and solves problems for hardworking American taxpayers. Stop, please. You know, the BS here is just so profound. What they're trying to get in place is a governing majority of the Uni Party so they can pass war funding because the budget is already set by the debt ceiling bill. All these people can do is lie to me and pass more money for emergency spending on war. Everything else is set. Please continue. My Republican colleagues have a simple choice. Yeah. They can either double or triple down on the chaos, dysfunction, and extremism, or let's have a real conversation about changing the rules of the House. Oh, stop so again. Two pieces. They can double down on chaos or we can change the rules. Change the rules. Double down on chaos. No, we're not doubling down on chaos. We're in a process of change that the Uni Party is interested in squashing so they can send my kids to war, draft my children. That's what they're angling for. And what did he say? Let's change the rules. Change the rules of the House that have existed for a very long time. And what do those rules do? They protect the rights of the minority. Hakeem Jeffries, House Minority Leader, is proposing changing the rules in the middle of the game so that minority rights are no longer part of the House of Representatives. Let's continue. Work in the best interest of the American. What are your demands, Leader Jeffries? You talk about changing the rules in the House. Can you tick through a couple of your demands that you're going to ask for? Well, these aren't demands. Uh, we are ready to be reasonable uh, in trying to find the common ground necessary. What are they? What is it that you want? That we want to ensure that votes are taken on bills that have substantial Democratic support and substantial Republican support. Please stop, please. Substantial uni party support. They're looking to create a Congress that has one party rule. Remember the last piece that we were talking about Germany? 
This is how it happens, step by step. And then comes the crisis, and all the rules change, and we wake up, and we have the illusion of choice, but we're really living in a one-party state. Please continue. That the extremists aren't able to dictate the agenda. The Stop current again. rules of the house. Keywords. I keep talking about keywords. When you're talking to your friends and neighbors, they're hearing this over and over again. These are extremists. They're in it for the money. They're in it for the media. They're lustful. They're angry. It's personal. All of these are labeling with the intent to discredit American citizens who actually care about the well-being of our children. This is the first time in my life since 1963 that the survival of my children is in question. It's been a long time, okay? 63? That's the last time things were this dangerous. And what do these people want? They want the authority to increase war. We're living in an empire, and what they're trying to do is label anyone that's speaking for peace to be an extremist. Please continue. House have facilitated a handful of Republicans being able to determine what gets voted on in the House of Representatives, and that undermines the interests of the American people. We can change the rules to facilitate bipartisanship, and that should be the starting point of our conversation. And Leader Jeffries, I hear you saying that this is a Republican issue, and of course, the discord is there. But as the Democratic leader of the House, don't you also bear a responsibility to try to bring this stalemate to an end? Uh, we want to reopen the House uh, and get to a place uh, where we can tackle the challenges that are in front of us domestically, as well as make sure that we can stand uh, with our close friend Israel during her time of need in terms of ensuring Israel's ability to decisively defeat Hamas, a brutal terrorist organization. We need to be able to stand with the Ukrainian people in its uh, effort to defeat Vladimir Putin and Russian yeah. aggression. We yeah. need to be able to make sure that we can keep the government open to meet the needs of the American people. And so we are ready, willing, and able to have those conversations. You'd effectively need about five Democrats to get on board and support a Republican speaker to have a governing coalition. Have you identified a candidate who you could potentially get behind? And would you allow your members to vote for a Republican speaker? Uh, we have not identified any candidate on the other side of the aisle, because our focus is not on the individual. It's on the institution of Congress and the best interests of the American people, which Stop. is why what we... So in other words, he's saying, whatever Republican shows up in calling this person Republican is really gives... So angering. I said I wasn't going to swear today. They're not Republicans. They're going to pick out a Democrat that happens to have an R after their name. And whoever is willing to change the rules, the focus on the institution, so that they can move through massive funding for war, that's their guy or their gal. That's what they're looking for. Please, let's finish this piece and move on. We've suggested is that we reevaluate the rules that are currently in place to facilitate bipartisan cooperation and to eliminate division.
And Leader Jeffries, how worried should people be about a potential government shutdown? It's now less than 40 days away. We entered into an agreement to avoid a catastrophic default on our debt uh, in May, led by President Biden, who's doing a tremendous job. More than 300 members of Congress supported that agreement, which included top-line spending numbers so that we would avert a government shutdown and could lean in to providing for the health, the safety, and the economic well-being of the American people. Leader Jeffries, would you intervene? What I'm asking, though, is would you intervene to prevent a shutdown? Because, as you know, military members are not going to get paid if the government shuts down. Is that the point where Democrats will intervene? House Democrats have already intervened to prevent a government shutdown. House Democrats provided a majority of the votes but on in September thirtieth to instance. avoid a government shutdown. We 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 certainly we are not the party of government shutdowns. We are the party that puts people over politics, and so of course we are prepared uh, to enter into an agreement that keeps the government functioning and that meets the needs of the American people. What I'm saying is that we entered into an agreement already that is a matter of law. And the problem is House Republicans breached that agreement less than a week after it was entered into. Okay, that's good. So, you know, from the mouth of babes comes the truth. Or from the mouth of Hakeem, because he's talking from the other side of the uni party. Professor Penn has been saying this for episode after episode. This whole thing is theater. Theater. There's a handful of American citizens that are hurling themselves against the uni party to change the hearts and minds of the American people. They don't want to send our sons and daughters to war. They don't want to bankrupt the country. They don't want to see our currency destroyed. They don't want to see our freedoms any further eroded. Did you notice how Representative Jeffries said, Democrats have already entered into an agreement with Republicans to prevent a shutdown. I've been saying this. The debt ceiling bill that was passed under Speaker McCarthy with more Democrat votes than Republican votes which was touted by Minnesotan Tom Emmer, who has now, you know, declared his candidacy for speaker as the greatest cuts in American history. And since that moment, almost $2 trillion of additional debt's been added. These people are full of it. There's not going to be a government shutdown. What there's going to be is sequestration. And the last couple podcasts ago when I was talking and riffing, the number of the, the the amount of the cuts is so small, I couldn't even get it right. The maximum cut is eight hundred million dollars, less than a billion, less than a billion. It's a six point seven trillion dollar budget, and they have unlimited authority to spend money and borrow money till January second, twenty twenty five, on matters of emergency, military emergency. So if they want to go out and crack out fifty trillion. To have a nuclear war? Hey, there's nothing stopping them. There's nothing stopping them. And what this guy's trying to do is remove the rules so they can do just exactly that. That's who these people are. Well, let me tell you, Hakeem has a doppelganger. When I say a doppelganger, have you ever heard of that before? That's a a German folklore term. According to German folklore, All living creatures have a spirit double who is invisible but identical to the living individual. These second selves are perceived as being distinct, and sometimes they are described as the spiritual opposite 
or negative of their human counterparts. Well, he's got a doppelganger. He's got an exact negative reflection from the military. General Jack Keene, one of my favorites. Let's play General Jack because what Hakeem is trying to set up is the funding for General Jack's vision of nuclear war. Let's just listen to General Jack. Israeli forces battling a two-front war overnight. Israel striking back at Lebanon after a fatal missile attack in an Israeli village on the Lebanese border. As IDF forces at the Gaza border prep for a massive ground invasion on Hamas. Fox News senior strategic analyst, retired four-star General Jack Keane joins us now. General, thanks for being here. Um, do you think this becomes a two-front war? I mean, you're seeing the, we've been covering the warnings from Iran. Iran saying, if you go into Gaza, we will, we will uh, open this up even more. Do you see that happening at this moment, General? Well, it certainly is a possibility. We just don't know for sure. I mean, what we're watching up in the north right now is, is the Hezbollah is using measured attacks against the Israelis, limited attacks. They're not conducting offensive operations to seize and hold any bases. They haven't launched any of their sophisticated missiles. They have over 130,000 of them against major cities. So what they are doing is because they want the Israelis to put forces up there to deal with this and distract from the forces they're going to use for their main effort going into Gaza. Now, whether that evolves into an all-out attack remain, remains to be seen. And certainly, this administration is doing everything it can to prevent that from happening. Obviously, the commitment of two carrier battle groups, a couple of squadrons we brought into the area. We've got the secretary of state moving around the region, talking to our Arab partners, and certainly so they can talk to the Iranians about don't take the next step. It's just going to destabilize the region itself. We'll see. I mean, the reality is, I just hope for sure that the one thing is happening is that we are talking privately to the Iranians. I mean, we have avoided talking to them publicly, yeah. that's for sure. We hardly mention their name. But we're talking to them privately and telling them that we will come full throttle if they expand this war, that all of their proxies will be at libel as a result of their ex expansion it, of the war. So here's General Jack. This guy is one in a million. You want to look at a great salesman? This guy's a great salesman. Four-star general retired. This guy is the best shill for the military-industrial complex. You know, General Jack, if you ever lose your job in show business, we got something for you here in the tire business. No problem. What a salesman. The one thing we want to tell the Iranians is, if you guys move, we're getting in the war. That's why they're trying to get these resistors in the house out of the way so they can have unlimited funding for this war. Now let's look at the facts on the ground. The Iranians are saying if the Israelis enter, enter Gaza, they're going to open the second front. Keen's saying we're warning them. They're not going to be warned. They're not going to be warned. Look at what's happening all over the world. You know, Islam, Muslim people, and Arab peoples all over the world are in the streets over this issue. This is the irresistible force and the immovable object. The Israelis are going into Gaza unless we the people stop them. And how do we do that? No money. We're sorry. 
No money. We're sorry. You go in there, you're on your own, boys. Maybe they'll think twice if America doesn't have their back. And what the Iranians are saying is if you go in there, hey, we're cutting loose 130,000 rockets. You think this is going to get bloody and expensive? Do you think it sets up the potential for a nuclear exchange? Yes, it does. Please continue. And I hope that has taken place. Do you think strategically, General, that Iran wants a wider war? Is this, is this something they've, a moment they've chosen to employ their pieces to, to draw us into one? What I think the Iranians want for sure is what we had seen taking place, and that's the normalization of relations between Saudi Arabia sure. and Israel. They saw that as really a disaster for them. I mean, you saw what already happened. UAE and Bahrain have normalized relations. Both of those countries with embassies in Israel have come down and condemned the Hamas attack. That likely never would have taken place yeah. without the normalization of relations. If Saudi Arabia normalizes, and I think this thing is be derailed but not set off, I think there's huge potential for it still happening. What follows that, Pete? is all the Arab and Muslim nations in the region will follow suit because they're the de facto leader of the Arab Muslim world in the, in the Middle East. That's what the Iranians are looking at, and they know for sure that they will be isolated very much as a result of it. No doubt. So uh, that, I believe, is the impetus for doing this. Uh, General, we've only got about 30 seconds, but we've seen a delay on the ground invasion uh, in Gaza, presumably because of weather. Does any of that surprise you? No, uh, they don't want to go without air power. They'll come on multiple axes, for sure. Air power to support them, they, they need that. Uh, when the weather clears and the time is right, whether they're coming at night or early in the morning, uh, they've probably got a new time schedule set on, on the weather. They want that air power to support their ground invasion. For sure. General Jack Keane, thank you for joining us, sir. Have a great Sunday. Yeah, great. Well, that takes money. And it's money that the U.S. government cannot provide until there's a Speaker of the House. So you're looking at one of the greatest political struggles in American history over my future, your future, the future of our children. Let's just take a minute and get caught up on the latest and greatest on the news in the region. Because if you're not watching it, I want to make sure you get it. Can you play this next piece? People, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry, although NBC News can't confirm that. The IDF and now the U.S. government say the explosion was not from an Israeli rocket. U.S. intelligence saying it likely was not. But the Arab street is still blaming Israel with angry protests again in Ramallah, Jordan, Yemen, Turkey, Tunisia, Morocco, Libya, Iran, and also Lebanon. So joining us now from Beirut, Lebanon, is NBC News foreign correspondent Matt Bradley. Matt, what did you see today? Yeah, well, we ended the day, Katie, at the U.S. Embassy, where we saw right after the police and the military seemed to have cleared up all the protesters, they were putting the barricades that were blocking that road up to the U.S. Embassy back up. You could still smell the tear gas in the air, and it looked like, and it was clear, that the protesters had actually set fire to one of the commercial buildings that was next to the road leading up to the embassy. And I got to tell you, they didn't make it within, it looks like, a kilometer of the embassy because there's so many guards uh, between that road and the embassy, just based on the past you know, threats 
that embassy personnel and the embassy itself have faced here in Lebanon. So the protesters never made it that close, but we were at a Hezbollah rally earlier in the day in the neighborhood of Dahia in southern Beirut, and there was an enormous amount of anger, not just against Israel, but also against the United States. You know, the protesters there, they were mentioning the names Israel and the United States in the same sentence, with the same tones, with the same condemnation. They were also mentioning Netanyahu and Joe Biden together. You know, there, for these protesters, there was no daylight between Netanyahu and Biden, between Israel and the United States. They see the United States as entirely complicit or really just identical as a force in the Middle East to Israel. And, you know, this is something that, you know, we saw this rage going on and on. There's, it was about that hospital explosion from last night. But at the same time, you know, I spoke with some of those protesters and, of course, just about all of them do not buy Israel's line, as you mentioned, that this was an errant bomb or rocket from a Palestinian militant group. None of them are accepting that notion. But when I asked them whether or not they would accept the idea if they had the evidence, they said, no, this is about anger that goes back generations against the United States and Israel. It's not just about last night. Uh, the, the narrative is already out there. So try cleaning it up. It doesn't seem to matter. Uh, Matt Bradley, Matt, thank you very much. This is about anger that goes back to the British Empire and the Ottoman Empire. This is very ancient corruption and hatred. And uh, the uh, seal's been broken here. You notice that the Arab street sees the United States and Israel as the same. That's because the Anglo-American cartel is what the Arabs are seen as the enemy. They're seeing Israel as a forward fire base. They know that Israel's a creation of the crown. They know this politics way better than the American citizens do. And they have aligned against the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. They're aligned against it for many reasons. Number one reason, it's about war. Number two reason, the values of liberalism have nothing to do with faith in God. These people in the Middle East know that the Democrat liberal order is a materialist, Darwinist philosophy that holds one race superior and another one inferior in reverse. Same thing. It's the same thing in reverse. We'll talk about it more in the future. It's a concept to contemplate. We don't have time to get into it today. But they know that this is an anti-God philosophy. They're not even fooled with the supposed Christianity of the United States of America. They know that's a cover story. They see America and Israel as faithless. That's what we need to know as American people. It's a faithless, militaristic, materialistic, anti-human killing machine. That's what they see, and that's what they're fighting. Well, I can't miss an opportunity to talk about corruption. And who better to inform us? We're going to go through a piece uh, with Lindsey Graham, who never misses an opportunity to pitch war because we got our perpetual salesman in there. You know, they've been elected by the American people. Who are we going to blame? People of South Carolina. Get rid of this guy. Become a delegate 
in your state party's process. Get an American candidate. Not this guy. This guy's working for death. Let's listen to Lindsey Graham, and we're going to be heading towards one spot, and then we'll stop and laugh together. And Please. welcome back. Joining me now is Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Senator, welcome back Thank to Meet you. the Press. Thank you. So you've just gotten off of the phone with Israeli yeah. and Saudi officials. You have new information. What can you tell us? Uh, yeah, I will be going to Saudi Arabia and Israel in the coming days with a group of senators. The drive to peace and normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel continues. There's a desire by both parties to move forward in this effort to normalize relationships. Uh, Israel uh, is talking about humanitarian aid. Uh, they're going to turn the water on in the south. They're urging the Egyptians to let people from uh, Gaza go into the Sinai. I just got a message from Cindy Bencain, the head of the World Food Program there in Dire Straits. So here's my message to our friends in Egypt. Open up. Allow Gaza residents to go into the Sinai, to the international community. We have to help. Uh, to our friends in Israel, you, you need the time and space to destroy Hamas. Uh, all Palestinians are not the same. If Hamas is destroyed, Israel is safer. And the pathway to peace between the Palestinians and the world gets wider. So I start this morning somewhat optimistic mm. that Iran's goal to destroy the peace process between Israel and Saudi Arabia will fail. And you don't think the peace process at this point is dead as we sit here and speak? No, I, I, I've never felt better about the drive to peace by Saudi, Israel, and the United States shall continue. We need to change the world as, yeah. as it is. Nothing would change the world for the better more than Saudi Arabia, Israel, and the United States to form agreements uh, to end the Arab-Israeli conflict as we know it. I do want to ask stop you for a about... Second. Just a little backdrop here. This really is getting into some very, very deep uh, religious history uh, related to the Democrats and Republicans of the Arab world or of the Muslim world, and that's the Sunnis and the Shias. Iran, Persia, is a Shia Muslim nation. Saudi Arabia is a Sunni Muslim nation. The most holiest sites in the Arab world, in the Muslim world, not the Arab world, the Muslim world, is Mecca and Medina, which are the holy sites that the Saudis have stewardship over. And what the Iranians are saying to the Muslim people is that the Saudis, by making agreement with the great Satan, are no longer righteous and cannot have stewardship over these sites. What the Iranians, what the Persians are aiming for is for Persia to reclaim stewardship of Mecca and Medina. So this thing is deep, really deep, and gets into some very ancient tribal conflict. And, of course, the Anglo-Americans are right in the center of it, trying to pull the Saudis into an agreement with the Israelis. Well, the Saudis have to look at survival. Within the Saudi polity, there are some very extreme Wahhabist elements. Do we remember 9-11? Do we remember it was mostly a Saudi operation? Come on. This is not simple. There are very, very fundamentalist forces in Saudi that are going to oppose any kind of peace agreement with Israel. And, and the Persians are just bringing that to the, to the forefront. Let's continue.
about the crisis on the ground in Gaza. And, yeah. and you have said that Israel should go into Gaza and, quote, level the place. If necessary. Are you calling for the full-scale destruction of Gaza despite no. what could be untold civilian deaths? No, I'm calling for the destruction of Hamas. Uh, Israel is trying to find a safe place for Gaza residents. Uh, Hamas is trying to stop them from leaving. Israel is trying to encourage them to leave. Our friends in Egypt, you have it in your power to give uh, Gaza residents a safe place. This will be a World War, World War II type operation where you go in and destroy the regime, Hamas, and over time stop replace it with- A World War II type operation, that would be called total krieg, complete and utter war. No rules, that's what he's advocating. And he says he doesn't believe in destroying Gaza. But when I look at the drone footage of Gaza, whoa, all I see is rubble destruction, chaos. Let's continue, please. There's something else like we did Germany and Japan, but the Israelis do not want to kill innocent people. They're going to turn the water on. Every death going forward, I blame on Hamas, not Israel. Well, and of course, 40% of Gaza's population is under the age yeah. of 15. Yeah. Uh, are you confident, though? Right now, the people <laughs> of Gaza are trapped. Are you confident? And, and, and are you essentially sending the message to Israel to let them get out before they begin their ground invasion? Israel doesn't need me to tell them to let them out. They want them out. Israel doesn't, you know, the tit for tat exchange, the old way of doing business died with the killing and slaughter of the Israeli babies by Hamas. We're not going to do the old game anymore. The goal is to destroy Hamas as a terrorist organization. That would liberate the Palestinian people who live in Gaza and would make it safer for Israel. We're going to give Israel the time and the space. Egypt, if you're listening to this program, open up your borders. The world will help you deal with these people in the Sinai, and they will go back home. But when they go back home, Hamas will be destroyed. And I have to ask you the same question I asked Jake Sullivan. What happens the day after if Israel is successful in defeating Hamas in Gaza? Who governs Gaza, Senator? Okay, here's what I think. That's a really good question. All Palestinians are not the same. They're all not terrorists. The PA is still in existence in the West Bank. The deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia has a Palestinian component. For this deal to really go into effect, the Saudis are willing to help the Palestinians. But the PA needs to change. We got old corrupt leaders. They need to be replaced with younger leaders who are less corrupt. Stop, so please. I, I just had to play that for everybody because it really typifies our politics. We need to replace older corrupt leaders with younger leaders who are less corrupt. You know, sometimes the honesty is too much. How about replacing the leadership with leaders who are not corrupt at all? Leaders who are dedicated to the well-being of the people, that are dedicated to peace and safety and generosity and kindness. How about those kind of leaders? Not leaders that are less corrupt. Because, you know, once you're corrupt, you know, it has an end point. Once you take, well, hey, just take a little bit more. And, and pretty soon you're an old leader who's totally corrupt. So let's just enjoy that. That was for a laugh. I just put that up there just so we could all have a community-wide laugh at the honesty of Senator Graham, who has never seen a war he couldn't support because he, like General Jack Keane and Hakeem Jeffries, are salespeople for the military-industrial complex and the banking system that profits 
from these activities. There's no benefit for me. There's no benefit for my children. My children don't even realize that they're draft age and they're going to get drafted. And of course, my kids are very left, very liberal, all educated at the best schools. It's time for the left to understand what has happened to leftism in this country. You know, when I was a young person and I was on the left, it was about peace. It was about ending the war in Vietnam. It was about free speech. It was about the right to assemble. It was about civil rights, women's rights. It was about freedom. That was a scam. The left was using those ideas. That's not who the left really is. But as I've said many times, the people who fund these different groups, they don't care if they're left or right, liberals or Nazis, Republicans or Democrats. None of that matters. They're all the same. And as I said in the last podcast, the American consumer goes down to the big box store on Sunday and spends money on goods that are mostly made by Chinese companies around the world. That money goes to China, our dollars. The Chinese use that money to buy oil from the Iranians. The Iranians use the profit on that purchase to fund Hezbollah and Hamas that attack Israel, and Israel is funded by the United States of America. That's a really great circle, isn't it? In other words, the people that have the money, that be we the people, we're on both sides of this equation. We've got to choose a side. We can't be on both sides. This is such an easy problem to fix. We have environmental problems of monumental proportions. But to get to the time when we can solve our environmental problems, we have to survive this moment in world history. Because, you know, if there's a nuclear exchange and there's a worldwide famine and half the people on Earth die, hey, we didn't need a climate crisis. It'd be called, you know, we just killed ourselves. Well, we're killing ourselves one way or the other, right? Let's get through this spot. How do we do it? Bring back our jobs to the United States. Stop funding our enemies. Open up energy production so that the price of energy comes down. That will alleviate the inflation and take the pressure off my family. I can't afford to go out to eat. And when that price of energy comes down, the fuel that funds these wars will evaporate. When there's no money, there's no fighting. Okay? So if we could get through to all the American citizens that the chaos we see in the Congress is not chaos. It's people that seek peace, that seek human well-being, that seek a balanced, balanced budget, that want freedom, and, and they want my children not to have to go to war, that those people who are being demonized as extremists, mega-extremists, that they're being demonized as vengeful, lustful, drug-doers, every bad adjective is being put upon people that are simply saying, we can't afford a $33 trillion debt. Come on. What do we do? We go into the streets and peacefully protest against war. What do we do? What do I do? I'm a delegate. I can carefully seek out 
those candidates that I wish to support. I vote. I talk to my neighbors. I'm talking to you. And by the way, I love the live chat stuff we're doing. We're talking back and forth to each other. And I want to say again, if I don't answer you, it's not because it's personal. I have so much correspondence. I'm trying to spread it around and be in touch with everybody. Please help this broadcast. Please go to Free People Radio. Please take a look at our content. Please look at how you can support the station. Thank you very much for doing so. And if you need tires, tireget.com. Everything you need for tires at the best possible price. We're going to ship the tires to your local tire store. No extra charge. And there you can go have them put on. You have already paid for the installation at the lowest possible price. So it's the best price on the tires, the best price on the service. And when you do it, you're funding the movement. So thank you very much for doing so. So let me get personal. I want to get personal. As I said earlier, from my perspective, this is the most dangerous moment to my life in my lifetime since 1963. Now, I remember 1963, for those of you who don't know what I'm referring to, that was the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's when the Soviet Union, better known as Russia, put nuclear missiles, nuclear-tipped missiles, into Cuba and were building uh, military installations there which would allow them to attack the United States with nuclear weapons with a very short turnaround, you know, five minutes. And this was a retaliatory effort because the United States had put nuclear missiles in Turkey. So, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, but not really because the United States went all in on letting the Soviets know that if they didn't dismantle these bases and if they didn't stop trying to develop them, there was going to be a a war. And uh, Kennedy actually, President Kennedy, actually blockaded Cuba, and there was a a, a convoy of Russian vessels heading towards Cuba with missiles, with military hardware, and the whole world sat at the edge of their couch because they knew that the potential for military engagement at sea was very possible, if not likely. And, of course, there were forces in the United States, the same people that are pushing the war today, they were pushing the war in 63, and they wanted a nuclear confrontation with the Soviets. It was thought to be a winnable event. As I keep saying, go back and look at the 1963 movie, Dr. Strangelove, where Stanley Kubrick brilliantly captures the zeitgeist of the time. Go watch Dr. Strangelove. But it's the most dangerous moment. And I remember my father uh, leaving for work and telling my mother and I, if the nuclear war starts, go to the caves by by the river. We live close to the Mississippi River. There were caves there. He said, go to the caves. I'll find you. Sure, we wouldn't have never found each other because our apartment building was right behind a military installation. They probably had a nuclear bomb targeted right on that building. But, hey, I I digress. I just remember that it was very sketchy, very iffy. And and, uh, 
I'm, I'm getting that same feeling. I haven't felt anything like that until this period. And uh, it's only if we the people stand up and fight for peace that there's going to be peace. But I'm not plan, planning on peace. I have a, um, a diet now. When I say a diet, what I'm consuming. My diet, and I mean my spiritual diet, my physical diet, it's a diet for war. I'm praying with all prayer constantly. There's just a loop in my head working of prayer, of thanksgiving. And I want to tell you uh, what a difference a day makes. When, when we pray correctly or with um, great humility and with complete honesty about our own shortcomings, and when we, and when we pray, thanking God, and we believe we receive what we're praying for. Like I thank you, God, for bringing me peace. I've been having such a difficult year uh, funding this Free People Radio, and business is so difficult with this inflation, and I've been praying to survive, and I, I can't promise you that we're going to survive. But all of a sudden, I woke up one day, and the clouds parted. And I would pray, oh, God, please help me. And I'd say, Man, don't pray like that. Don't grovel. Thank you, God, for helping me. Thank you, God, for protecting my business. Thank you, God, for protecting my health and well-being. Thank you, God, for protecting my country. If we all start to pray, I mean, when we really pray as a community, that's powerful. A prayer for peace is so powerful. And I hope all of us can get out in the streets and protest for peace, and you're going to see me doing it. But I want to finish today. Um, I have a uh, communication going with one of my viewers, and he sent me a, um, a note, and he said, Professor Penn, how about a history lesson on Christianity and who is and isn't Christian, who's communist, who's Marxist, who's materialist? Start with, we do not all worship the same God. Anyone who says so probably needs to reflect on whether they are a believer in our Lord, the living God, Jesus Christ. And I got that, and I've decided to respond to it. And uh, this is a person that I really enjoy communicating with, and we're communicating, not agreeing since this. I mean, we had a lot of agreement, but when this uh, war broke out in the Middle East, uh, I'm not pro-Israel, I'm not pro-Hamas. Now, I know as an American Jew, it doesn't matter if I'm not taking sides. I'll be killed. I, I get that. And uh, I'll be killed if they can kill me. And that's why I say I have a diet for war. Uh, when I say I have a diet for war, I'm sharpening my spear, spiritually and physically. I must do that. I must be in good shape physically spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and those are all taxonomies. I'm a unity, and i got to be in my best game now. We don't know. I mean, it'd be nice to believe that life's going to go on for a long time. And I do want to tell everyone, because those who have been following the podcast know I have a lot of connectivity to the Chinese and to the Chinese people and to the Chinese government. And I want to make it very clear that the deepest, darkest battle here where the big money comes 
is a conflict with China. And as we've said, China funds Iran. In Russia, Iran and China are in what's called the Iron Triangle because it's an alliance that can never be broken. But the signals are coming from China, and they're loud and they're clear. They do not want a war with the United States. Let me say this again, because it's a little bit different than what you hear in the alt-right media. The Chinese are sending a very clear signal. They do not want a war. Now, in the Second World War, the United States put a lot of time and trouble into creating a fake army and put General Patton in charge of it to make the Germans think that the invasion of Fortress Europe would be at the Pas de Calais instead of in Normandy. So there's always scams, scams, diversions, and this could be a diversion. And this I do not know because a diversion is a diversion. But the Chinese people are being very, the government is being very direct in sending the message they do not want a war. So who wants a war? Do you want a war? Do I want a war? It's that pregnant silence where you can take an inventory in your mind whether you want to see a war. Because people of certain age groups, we're so dependent on the idea of the United States being the most powerful country in the world that our military can take care of anything. We're so dependent on that identity, we'll go to war just to see what happens. And come on, are we old enough? I mean, if you are of that cohort, you're too old to fight. You know, this is, this is one of the classics. If all wars were fought only by people my, by my age group, there'd be no wars. We're masters at sending our children to war. We don't want to die in a war. That doesn't sound so fun. But it's my age group that has this identification with the United States as the most powerful country on earth, the best country on earth. And that's a scam. We're an empire. Look at, you know, when you see all, millions of people protesting our foreign policy all over the world, I mean, if it was one person standing with a sign, that guy's probably an asshole. But when you got millions of people doing it, maybe we're the assholes. We need to think this thing through. But I want to go back to this. This co communication I got from one of my very beloved viewers. How about a history lesson on Christianity and who is and isn't? Communism, Marxism, materialism. Start with, we do not all worship the same God. Anyone who says so probably needs to reflect on whether they are a believer in our Lord, the living God, Jesus Christ. Well, I'm going to take a few minutes and try to share with you what I think about this in response to this. I'm a rare human being. I, I was raised uh, in a pretty religious Jewish background. Uh, I was taught the Bible in Hebrew. I read Hebrew. I read the Bible in Hebrew. I've been studying the Bible in Hebrew my entire life. In 1989, uh, through no fault of my own, I was confronted with the reality that I didn't expect, which was Jesus Christ, who came right into my life like a freight train. Because the light that I was seeing was like a freight train. I could not avoid it. And because I had had no uh, previous identification with Christ, or I'd had no study of the New Testament, no iconology, no um, history. The only thing I ever knew about Jesus Christ is I was taught that he was a scammer. 
and uh, not to speak of him because he was not a good person. And when he, when Jesus Christ showed up in my life, and I mean he showed up, um, that changed my life. So I have an Old Testament view and a New Testament view, which makes me kind of unique. And it's been said many times, half the story has never been told. But I also was trained by a uh, very accomplished uh, person who was in our military in the art of war from the perspective of Asia. And uh, the Asians have their own history, their own warrior tradition, their own faith tradition, which is linked to what they call the natural way. And we see that in martial arts movies, but that's, that's kind of trite. It's a deep spiritual pursuit. And uh, because I chose to, I uh, went on a you know 20-year path of serving in that society or in that organization. So I really have had the Old Testament, the New Testament, in a really good dose of Chinese mysticism or Chinese faith. And I've been in China over 100 times, maybe close to 200 times. So I have some ability to talk about these things. I didn't read this uh, from a book. I've actually incorporated all three traditions into my own spiritual practice, Old Testament, New Testament, and uh, the natural way. And I have to say, uh, can't really tell a difference. Well, that's not what people want to hear. But let's think about what is the end point of our apocalyptic eschatology, and that's one world governance under Christ. Christ will judge us for what we believe and who we are. These religious organizations are businesses. They're organizations where money flows uphill and you know what comes downhill. What Christ did as a Jew, as a Jewish rabbi, is he liberated the Jewish people from dependency on the Sanhedrin and on the religious orthodoxy of Israel. That was a tradition where you needed 10 men to pray. There was no direct relationship with God. Christ said, I'll give you a comforter, a Holy Ghost that will live inside you. Paul talked about the circumcision of the heart, where people find God on an individual basis and work out their salvation on an individual basis. Let us have some openness that we don't understand God's plan. We don't. One day, I'm looking at the end of everything, and the next day, I have so much opportunity and hope, I don't even know where it came from. That's not because I'm so smart. That's because I'm trying to be as faithful as I can and be a servant of God as much as I can. I have faith that God's plan is beyond my understanding and that what I need to do is take the next step in my own life. I do not want to judge against the Islamic religion or the Jewish religion or the Christian religion or the Asians. I don't want to judge because it's written, judge not lest I be judged. What I want to do is allow God's plan to unfold. 
to spread amongst all of you a desire to discover God in your own heart. That's the greatest revolutionary sentiment in the history of the world. We live in a Darwinist dog-eat-dog model, and we have Christ in the salvation of of my life through faith as a juxtaposition to death and the survival of the fittest. It's an incredible revolutionary idea. So I just want that revolution to spread. I want to sit here with you, develop this community, work on our faith, work on our prayer, so that we have the power to oppose death and destruction and materialism. Materialism is the opposite of faith. We have a spirit world and a material world. We have a spiritual world and a material world. We walk by faith and not by sight. We don't rely on a material orientation. We rely on a spiritual orientation. That balances us, like the yin-yang symbol, or the symbol of the cross, or the symbol of the Jewish people, the opposing cross uh, triangles. These are symbols of balance. Symbols of balance. Judge not, please, lest we be judged. This is a moment where our judgments may come home to roost. Let us let go of our judgments. Let's embrace each other with love. Let's believe and have trust and faith in God's world, his creation. So I'm going to go out today. I went out this week and I went into the woods just to let myself loose of this terror. And I have pictures that we took in the woods this weekend. And I'm going to run these pictures over Vivaldi's Fall, which is one of the four seasons. Beautiful music. So please, let's go out, let's look at God's world, and let's work together to preserve it. Thank you very much, and I look forward to seeing you soon again.